Dad the Man, the guy who's living life the right way by loving and leading his family. World class at his craft and admired by many, but more importantly, he sets the tone for what a great man, husband, and father looks like. That's who Dad the Man is. And the truth is, as men, husbands, and fathers, we experience and struggle with so many of the same things. And it's time we recognize that we're all in this together. So drop your ego at the door and join us in the conversation. Welcome to Dad the Man. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dad the Man podcast. My name is Brendan Wall, and I am your host. And today, I have one ask, as I always do. If you are enjoying the show, if you enjoyed today's episode, or if you are learning anything at all, please do me a huge favor and help me to share the show. Whether that's telling a friend or mentioning it to someone at work or sharing us on social media, I cannot thank you enough for your support. So today's guest is none other than Drew Manning. Drew is a health and fitness expert who you may have heard about from his experiment called Fit to Fat to Fit. So Fit to Fat to Fit is a journey that Drew went on to better understand the clients he was serving as a physical fitness trainer, where he intentionally gained 75 pounds himself over the course of six months and then lost it all. The story went viral, landing him on just about every television talk show um, on TV at the time, and even resulted in two seasons of his own Fit to Fat to Fit TV show, which aired on A&E, where he led other trainers through the same journey. He even wrote a book about his experience titled Fit to Fat to Fit, which became a New York Times bestseller. And as if doing it once was not enough, Drew then did this experiment again recently as he turned 40, and of course he called it Fit to Fat to 40. So aside from Fit to Fat to Fit, Drew is also known as a leading expert in the keto diet, and he also has written a book on this as well. It's titled Complete Keto, and he's the host of his own podcast titled The Fit to Fat to Fit Experience. So Drew is hell-bent on bringing self-awareness and empathy to the forefront of the fitness industry and the world in general, which is a mission that I can absolutely get behind. But above it all, Drew is an incredible man and an incredible father to two daughters, and it was truly an honor to host him on the show. So here's my conversation with the Drew Manning. And we are live with the man behind the Fit to Fat to Fit movement, the one and only Drew Manning. I do. I want to take a quick second here right before we jump in. I want to thank you so much for making the time to jump in with us today. Um, I've been following you for a long time and I'm a big fan. So I'm super excited to chat with you. You know, it's funny, this world that we live in today, that's so driven by social media. And, you know, a lot of times we kind of live in that world. There's so many people, seems like nowadays who have gotten really good at talking that talk, right? And it sounds great, but for a lot of people, that's where it stops. But in following yeah. you over the years, one of the things that I really appreciate and admire the most about you is your willingness to roll up your sleeves and really walk that walk as well. And that's just evidenced by, you know, fit to fat to fit, fit to fat to 40. These, these instances where you have done some really crazy work and done a crazy experiments on yourself to learn more about people so that you can serve those people better. That's just something that I have so much respect for. And uh, man, I'm just so excited to have the opportunity to chat with you today. So with all that being said, Drew Manning, welcome to the Dad the Man mm-hmm. podcast. Thank you so much, Brendan. Thank you. That was a great intro. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Super pumped to have you. So to get things started, what I want to do is I want to take things way back. I want to take 
take us back to your childhood. I'd love to give everybody an opportunity to get the feeling for, you know, who you are, where you came from. So if you don't mind, maybe tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, siblings, uh, family dynamic, yeah. all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about that. So I grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters. I grew up most or half of my childhood in San Diego, California, and then the other half uh, in Virginia, Northern Virginia. Um, yeah, I was number seven out of 11. My parents, I don't know how they did it, but they had 11 kids. <laughs> I yeah. was, uh, there's eight boys and three girls. Um, you know, so there's always someone to play with. The house was always full of people. Um, as far as family dynamics go, um, I can only imagine what it was like for my parents. I mean, they were probably constantly in survival mode with 11 kids. Like, how do we feed this many people? How do we keep them alive? Do they have clothes? And like, that was basically the, their main priorities was <laughs> keeping us alive, keeping us fed and getting us to, you know, football practice, wrestling, you know, dance recitals, whatever. I don't know how they did it. Right. But mm -hmm. looking back on it, you know, there, I see, you know, so where some things caused me to suffer because maybe there was like a lack of attention or one-on-one -on -one time where I wasn't sure where I fit in, who I was, what my identity was, was, um, you know, I grew up very religious as well. I grew up in the Mormon religion. And so my family dynamics were, you know, um, a little bit complex because there's so many kids just to, you know, keep alive. And uh, that's kind of the main focus that I felt like I had from my parents was like, you know, you, I got attention only when I got in trouble, <laughs> you know, if I got in trouble or something bad happened, that's when I got yelled at or got in trouble uh, or got some attention from them. But if, you know, I was good, I was a good little boy and, and things were fine. It was like, that's what was expected of me. And uh, so it was really interesting. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, we grew up not very close, even though we had a lot of siblings, we didn't, I wouldn't say we're very close, um, but it, it definitely, uh, the good things that came out of it was I learned how to discipline myself, push myself because I played football and I wrestled and I became really, really good at those sports. I, I was very athletic and I, um, you know, could push myself in the gym and on the field and, and on wrestling that and I excelled at those sports. And so physical fitness kind of became a part of my life from a very young age because I wanted to be like, you know, I remember seeing movies like Conan and like, you know, like Rocky. And I'm like, man, I want to be like that. And so, mm -hmm. plus I had older siblings that played football and wrestled too. So I kind of followed suit. And so as far as like the, the physical fitness, that kind of came natural for me because I excelled at, I, I excelled at sports and I uh, pushed myself, um, you know, in those sports. And because of that, byproduct of that was being physically fit, which came very natural for me. And so, that was a little bit about my family dynamics. And, uh, you know, like I said, grew up in San Diego, Virginia, went on a two-year mission to Brazil, lived in Brazil for a couple of years, um, you know, finished up schooling in Virginia, uh, played football like in Utah as well in college. I went to a bunch of different colleges, graduated from the school in Virginia, moved to Illinois and worked in the, uh, as a financial analyst, then went into the medical field. And then I did fit to bed to fit which I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I cannot imagine what a living room is like with 11 kids in it. I don't think I've ever been in a room with that many. I've got two myself. And uh, I mean, like what you were just you know saying, talking about your parents trying to keep everybody alive and fed. And I feel like my hands are full with two. Uh, cannot True. imagine 11. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned kind of, I guess, unpacking some of those some of those things that maybe caused you some, some trauma or some things that you've had to work through as you've mm -hmm. gotten older from your childhood, whether it be the lack of attention or only getting attention, um, 
in times when you were getting disciplined or something like that. What has that process been like for you? And, and I guess, when did that happen? Like, were you aware of that when you were younger? Is that something you've had to maybe turn your, your head and heart to as you've gotten older? come at an older age unfortunately and i kind of wish i connected the dots earlier and was more self-aware but i i didn't become self-aware probably until my mid-30s when i actually left my religion and i went through a divorce so those two big factors of my identity were kind of taken out from underneath me and i had to discover who i really was without those two things being told who i was as far as my religion goes and being the spouse like the husband of someone that I'd been married to for 10 years, I had to figure out who I was at that point. And that's where I really started to do the inner work and became more self-aware and then connected those dots. And I was like, oh, what, why did I struggle? What, why do I struggle in life? And then it's like, okay, going back and tracing the steps of like, okay, where, when did I first, you know, learn how to self-sabotage? When did I first start doing that? When did I first develop this self-hate? Because I had this idea of I had to be perfect. And if I had weaknesses, I would discipline myself and beat myself up if I messed up and where did that come from? And I, so that kind of helped me to dig deeper into my family dynamics and how those, you know, quote unquote traumas affected me in my adult years where I'm like, Oh, the reason I uh, put so much pressure on myself was probably because my perception of my religion, my upbringing by my parents and maybe sports of like, I didn't know how to handle my weaknesses. And so therefore if I had a weakness, I just developed this hate for myself and tried to discipline the weakness out of me, which can work to some degree, but it also breaks your soul. It, it just totally rips you apart on the inside. And I think that's what men are have been trained to do is just to man up, suppress your feelings, you know, push those emotions away and just like, you know, show up and be a man and don't show emotions and don't cry and don't, you know, talk about those vulnerable things because vulnerability is a weakness it's looked down upon your friends make fun of you if like you have feelings you know mm -hmm. and so doing the inner work has been huge for me because now I can figure out why I've failed over and over again and why I self-sabotage and now that I'm aware of it I'm in control of it and there's a good quote by Rumi he says or no sorry Anthony DeMello I think is um what you are aware of you're in control of what you're not aware of controls you. And so the, the self-awareness is the biggest key to any kind of transformation. If you want to lose weight, if you want to transform financially, emotionally, spiritually, you have to do the inner work to become more self-aware. And once you become more self-aware, you're more in control of those things that have been controlling you your whole life. And so that's kind of why I'm a big, huge proponent of doing the inner work, whether it's therapy or meditation or self-reflection or, um, you know, um, journaling, um, you know, gra gratitude lists, positive affirmations, uh, doing the work to help you become more self-aware because uh, like you mentioned, you're a dad, I'm a dad too. And if I don't learn how to do that, then I continue the cycle and pass that stuff on to my kids, uh, unfortunately. And that generational trauma that's just been passed down because no one's really doing the work to become aware of it, you know, uh, just gets passed on from generation to generation. If you want to break that cycle, so that your kids don't have to go through with it, then it's time to show up and do the work on yourself so that they don't have to suffer. It's not their fault, right? It wasn't my fault that I had to go through that. It wasn't my parents' fault that they had to go through that. It just, we're all products of our environment until you show up and do the work for yourself. And then you can break that cycle and not pass that on to your kids or your grandkids. And so that's kind of why when I went through my uh, rock bottom moment, when I left my religion and went through my divorce, 
was, okay, do I want to stay stuck here and play the victim mindset of blaming my parents or blaming God or blaming whoever? Um, or do I want to, you know, show, show up for myself and do the work so that my kids don't have to go through that and their kids don't have to go through that. It's, it's really, that was the, the deciding factor for me of like, okay, I could stay stuck here and blame people, blame this and that for, for whatever happened, or I could do the work and, and uh, break that cycle. Yeah. Self-awareness is, is huge, huge, huge. It's, it's, um, there's a theme that's kind of been coming to my mind a lot doing this conversation or doing this podcast. And that's this idea that ignorance is not bliss. You know, you hear that all the time. Ignorance yeah. is bliss, Yeah, but it's, it True. just isn't because the ignorance to me, like in what you're talking about, ignorance is that is passing along the generational trauma that is passing along, not knowing how to handle failure, not knowing how to handle your emotions and stuff like that. Like, I think it's, but it, but it's hard, right? Cause like that, if we're gonna fix those things, like we really have to turn and face them and acknowledge that we're doing something wrong now, or we're not yeah. doing something well enough now. And I think that like, that's where I've kind of caught myself in the past, like kind of shying away from trying to have a little bit more awareness and improve in something. It's like, you kind of first have to swallow the pill of I'm not doing well enough right now. I can do better. Yeah. And I think there's yeah. a lot of grace that's got to be given in that moment to ourselves to be able to, uh, to do that. So kind of, I guess yeah. kind of thinking about things that way, how have you now, you mentioned you've struggled handling failures. sounds like you used to beat mm -hmm. yourself up a little bit, a lot of judgment against yourself. How do you now handle failures that you experience now? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think I can look at myself with a lot more compassion because of the work that I've done. And I'll tell a personal experience of how I got to that place. Um, um, it was after my divorce, I met with this life coach out in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I've talked about her on a bunch of podcasts. Um, she does, she facilitates the work by Byron Katie. And so if you don't know who Byron Katie is, I would recommend go read her book, Loving What Is, is the name of the book. And you'll understand a little bit more about what she does and how the work works. So she facilitates that and put me through that. And she was the first person after my divorce and leaving my religion where I finally learned how to love myself through her sessions and how the way she does it. It's, it's amazing. It's mind blowing. I highly recommend it. Tim Ferriss talks a lot about it. Uh, there's a lot of people who have been through her uh, or know who Byron Katie is. And it's become more mainstream because it's powerful stuff. And then once I learned how to operate out of a place of self-love, all my other relationships changed. Once I fixed my relationship with myself, then all my relationships changed. And so if I, now that I can, you know, see myself through a new lens, instead of the self-hate lens, I look at myself through self-love. I realize I'm in every single moment in my life, I've done the best I could in that moment. Even though my best one day might be better than the other day, in each moment, I feel like I did the best I could with what I had up until that time. And now that I know better, I can do better, but I can see myself through compassion. So even today, if I fail, if I screw up, if I mess up, I can acknowledge it. I can let the pain of it sit in. of like, man, that sucks. I really shouldn't have done that. But if you, and then now I can look at life happening for me instead of to me. So when you look at life happening for you, instead of to you now, you can see these failures or these experiences where normally I would beat myself up and hate myself and shame myself. And then this just creates this vicious cycle of, of continual self-sabotage and self-hate and shame. Uh, I can see is this as an, as an opportunity for growth. So, okay, mm -hmm. what this, this happened, I did this. What can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? Like, what did I learn from this experience 
of maybe quote unquote failing or see it as, uh, hey, this happened and I'm grateful for it because now my eyes have been opened. I've become more self-aware so that it doesn't repeat itself instead of, man, I'm blaming myself. I'm blaming, you know, all the past trauma from, you know, the way my parents raised me or God's fault or, you know, blaming myself for all that. I can see it through a new lens now. Mm -hmm. And it really comes back to self-love. And if you operate out of a place of self-love, you can see your, your mistakes and your kids' mistakes, your spouse's mistakes, friends and family. You can see their mistakes through a lens of compassion and realize that, hey, they're just doing the best they can in their situations. It doesn't make it all right what they do. You can still set healthy boundaries around it, but you don't need to hate other people for their mistakes. And also, you don't need to hate yourself. I think everything's a reflection of how we see ourselves. And if you hate yourself and you judge yourself and you self-sabotage and you, you, you look at yourself through that lens, guess what? You're going to look at other people through that same lens mm-hmm. of self-hate or like hate towards them and judgment towards them. And that's why there's so, there's so much hate in this world today. But if you fix your relationship with yourself, first and foremost, you learn how to love yourself. All your other relationships change. You see people through a totally different light. And that's kind of the key to transformation, in my opinion, is learning how to operate out of a place of self-love versus self-hate. And I wish I would have learned these lessons at a younger age, but now it's my responsibility to pass this on to my daughters and pay it forward to help them see themselves through this light so they don't have to grow up with that self-hate. 100%. I love the way that you express that. And what I'm hearing in there is it's like this idea of giving yourself grace from whatever it, it is that you've fallen short on. But then, like you said, learning the lesson to then not make the same mistake in the future and not, it's, it's giving yourself, I think, grace for what's happened in the past, but not making excuses for the future. is kind of yeah. what I'm hearing coming from you, which I think is a really um, practical way to think about it. And I, I'd love to ask you about this as well, and kind of in the same vein. So, you know, thinking about self-love, compassion for yourself, compassion for others, one of the things that I have been learning as a parent of, of young kids is that sometimes I think love is expressed in different ways and love has to be expressed in different ways. So for a simple way to put it might be sometimes love is being very you know, cuddly on the couch and lovey dovey. Sometimes love is holding somebody accountable, setting boundaries, yeah. holding them to a different standard. So you might call that tough love. Yeah. How do you marry the two of those together? Um, I guess between like the, I guess loving yourself, but also holding yourself to a higher standard. Do you ever run into a, I guess a conflict there? Is there a dichotomy there? How do you navigate that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it, it, it it's a little bit more complex when it, you have other people involved. Loving yourself, you can kind of control, you know, what you mm-hmm. do and your actions. And for the most part, like there's no surprises, right, with the way you you do things. But with your kids, you might you might be like, okay, how do I want to handle the situation? So I love Brene Brown's work. Um, she talks a lot about you know setting healthy boundaries and how setting healthy boundaries is self-love, even though it might seem like, like you're hurting this person or it, it, it offends them because you're setting healthy boundaries. But that's really what self-love is. And I think it's, um, it's just one of those things of learning how to set healthy boundaries. And you realize, even though this might hurt this person, that doesn't have anything to do with you. It has nothing to do with their hurt. It might seem like it's your fault. But if you could uh, realize that this is just the reaction to you setting healthy boundaries for yourself, it doesn't have anything to do with, with you at all. It's actually, okay, this is, I'm, te- I'm teaching this person how to treat me and, and how to you know, treat me with a, a certain level of respect. 
And it's, it's a little bit harder with kids, you know, because kids are very <laughs> irrational. And like one minute, like that my daughters are 10 or 12 and hormones are starting to change. You know, it's such a test every single yeah. day. It's not like, Hey, I've got it figured out now. It's not, it's dude, every single day is like an opportunity for growth because of the, the, the challenges thrown at you that are just like out of left field. You're like, all I did was ask you how you are. I don't understand why you're so <laughs> mad. Like, like what's going on here? It seems very simple, but it's, uh, I don't know. I think for me, um, you know, finding that balance of self-love, setting healthy boundaries, learning to say no, um, and, and not guilting yourself. I think it's hard as a parent, because sometimes we've been programmed to think as a parent, your job is to sacrifice your happiness for their happiness. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of parents make. Um, because if you're pouring from an empty cup constantly and you're abandoning yourself, that doesn't feel like self-love to our soul. It doesn't feel like that's the right thing to do, even though we've been programmed to think, oh, but you're sacrificing your happiness for their happiness. And that's, that's what the parents do. Yes, I think to a certain degree, there's a moment for that. But when you abandon yourself and you say no to yourself, mm-hmm. it, it catches up to you and it causes resentment. And um, resentment is like, drinking poison expecting that poison to kill your enemies right uh, i think nelson mandela said that um and so that's what i'm talking about is is you know deep down we're gonna it's gonna cause us to resent people if we abandon ourselves and we say no to ourselves but setting healthy boundaries and saying yes to ourselves and saying no to other things is a a, a, a great form of self-love it's just learning how to do it because no one teaches us how to like, no one teaches us how to do that. Like our parents don't really teach us or, you know, unless right. you started going to therapy as a young kid or you started reading books like this at a young age, which we probably didn't, right. or playing video games. Um, we, we haven't learned how to do that. So I'm just learning that now as a, you know, 40 year old, um, you know, been practicing for the past few years and it's probably, I still got a long ways to go. <laughs> yeah. I think we all, we all do and we all always will. Um, but bravo to you for, you know, stepping up and, and modeling it for, for your daughters. Cause like you said, you know, they, what they see you do is what they are going to learn to do themselves, whether that's yeah. you know, like conscious or subconscious, it's, they're going to do what they see being modeled in front of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's pivot a little bit. I want to, I do want to talk about fit to fat to fit. It would be wrong. Yeah. I think if we didn't cover that, because <laughs> um, well, when we, all right. So I'd love for you to get, just give us a quick breakdown of maybe what got you thinking about doing this, why you did it. And then from there, I'd love to talk a little bit about how this, you know, I guess bled into your family, things that you might've learned lessons from, we can, we'll get into that, but if you could just tell sure. us what exactly it is and what led you to do it. Yeah. So this goes back to about 2011 is when I first did it. But in 2009, I became certified as a personal trainer. Uh, I always knew I was into health and fitness and that was a passion of mine. And uh, so I became certified, started taking on clients. And then here I was, someone who had never been overweight a day in my life, trying to help people who were overweight pretty much the majority of their life. And I was coming from a place of thinking, oh, it's so easy, like just eat less calories and work out, follow the meal plans I give you and do the exercises. And then boom, you'll see the results. And I couldn't understand why my clients would struggle at being consistent. I'm like, why don't you just stop eating the junk food and do the workouts that I gave you? You'll just do it and you'll see the results, right? That was my mentality back then. And uh, I had a client tell me, you know, Drew, you don't understand how hard it is for me or for people like me, because for you, it's, it's always been easy. 
And I was like, you know what? You're right. I don't really understand why it's so hard. So maybe if I try and gain a better understanding, I can better help people. And so this idea entered my mind one day, what if you got fat on purpose and documented that journey to gain a better understanding of what it's like to be overweight for the first time. And so mm-hmm. kind of ran with that idea to make a long story short, six months, I stopped exercising. I ate a standard American diet full of highly processed food that we have here in America. I ended up gaining 75 pounds of pure fat in six months. The story went viral. Uh, it went on a bunch of TV shows like Dr. Oz and Good Morning America, The View, Dr. Drew, like Jay Leno, all these TV shows. And then I wrote a book about my experience and what I learned from it. Um, the book got turned into a TV show where we had two seasons of Fit to Fat to Fit on a where we put other trainers through that process um, so that you know they could learn the lessons that I learned because it was one of the hardest, most humbling things I've ever done. I realized how wrong I was in my approach. And I think that's what made me more relatable was me talking about just how wrong I was and how humbled I was and how my eyes were open to how much of transformation is mental and emotional, man. Like I, I, I am in, I've been in the fitness industry for years now, and we still try and think that physical transformation is just a physical thing. Sure. Yes, there is a physical aspect to it, mm-hmm. but that's not what people struggle with. People struggle with the mental and emotional hurdles that come with trying to transform physically and uh, people haven't figured that part out yet. And we talked about doing the work and becoming self-aware. All of that stuff is not talked about in the fitness industry. That's kind of talked about in therapy and church and other places outside of physical fitness. Cause we're like, we don't see the connection of those two things, but it really is the most important thing, the mental and emotional size. And so that's kind of what I learned from that first experiment. And, um, yeah, it was crazy. I'm glad I survived it <laughs> and, um, no regrets, but I, I learned a lot of valuable lessons from it. Yeah. Gosh, it sounds like it. This is what I was talking about in the intro. When I said, your guy's not afraid to walk the walk. You quite literally <laughs> yeah. put on 75 pounds so that you could better understand the people you were trying to serve, which is amazing to me. And I think what's yeah. so deeply rooted in that obviously is, the, um, you know, empathy. I mean, that is yeah. literal empathy, 75 pounds worth of empathy doing it twice. To me, that is crazy. Um, So talk to me a little bit about empathy and maybe why you think that is so important um, and how you've maybe kind of learned, taken that lesson and how it's impacted you as as a father of your daughters. Yeah. Thanks, Brendan. Good question. So uh, ever since that first experiment where I was truly humbled back in 2011, 2012, when I did it, uh, one of the biggest things that I learned for you know, those that struggle with weight loss is having empathy for them. Cause even I admit that I was wrong and thinking it was easy and uh, doing it that first time really helps me develop empathy for those that struggle. And so ever since then, I've been a big proponent of trying to bring more empathy to the fitness industry. Cause I see the fitness industry and it's an industry that's so focused on body image. There's so much judgment and hate and uh, misunderstanding that goes on of those who struggle with weight loss. And I see the judgment towards them thinking, look, what's wrong with you people just eat less and work out. Like, why don't you just do that? Cause I was that person. I came from that mindset. Now having done fit by fit, I'm trying to tell people that were like me saying, Hey, it's time we stop that approach, that, that tough love approach, you know, discipline uh, type of approach. It doesn't work for everyone. And I feel like there's a Teddy Roosevelt quote, and he says, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And that quote really stuck with me because that's what fit to fit to fit is all about. 
I mean, you could have all the credentials in the world as a trainer, as an influencer, as a fitness coach, as a doctor, as a, whatever you want to call yourself. The problem that I think people have is they feel misunderstood. And so you could have all the credentials, all the scientific knowledge of how to transform someone physically, but people don't care about that until they know how much you care about them first and foremost. And so if people feel understood, they're going to be more willing to listen to you and more willing to follow you if they feel safe. And I, that's where I feel like empathy is one of those key components, not just in the fitness industry, but in the, in the world in general, we're such, we're a society of, we're so quick to judge, right? You see people post on social media and there's so much division and hate and judgment based on like, you know, your political status or one quote or one post that you post, people are all over you. They, they just label you so quickly. And I love Brene Brown. She says, um, you know, people are really hard to hate up close. And if you truly get to know someone's story and truly trying to understand them, yeah, it's really hard to hate that person that you just judged uh, once you hear their story and you hear what they've been through. And that's what empathy does is that empathy, empathy is listening to understand someone, not listening to judge, not listening to respond or critique or convince them of your ways but truly listening to understand someone and their perspective on what they've been through and why they are the way they are, it helps you better understand them. And once you better understand them, you can better help them, right? And um, I feel like that's something that uh, I'm, I'm on a mission to bring more empathy to the fitness industry, which hopefully will carry over into more empathy in the world in general. And so what that does for me as a parent now is it applies in all areas of my life. So having empathy for my daughters, uh, especially with, the hormonal changes that they're going through really helps me not to judge them and be so critical of like, why are you crying today? Like, why don't you just be happy? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so quick. It's so easy to, to quickly judge them in those moments. But if I sit down and get on their level and, and, and look them in the eye and talk to them and create a safe space where they can tell me what they're going through and what they're experiencing, then I can better help them. But if I'm just like, you know, what's wrong with you? Like, stop crying, like stop being emotional that doesn't help anyone, right? Like when has ever, when, when has ever you said, Hey, calm down, ever work, <laughs> you know, to, especially to a female, it yeah. doesn't work. Right? Gets laid so, on a fire. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how it's carried over into my personal life. And me as a dad, I think empathy can be applied in all areas of this life. And if we want a better world, I think empathy is, is one of the driving forces. So it's, it's something that some people are maybe more prone to uh, having more empathy, but other people need to learn that uh, as a skill set. Yeah. It's funny. That's something that I've always felt that's uh, kind of been a natural skill of mine or a tendency of mine. And the majority of my life, I saw it as a weakness. Like I thought that made me weak. Like I yeah. thought that made me less of a man. And I was, yeah. and I wrestled with that for a long time. And it wasn't until I really started getting into doing this podcast and having more conversations with people. I was like, Oh, this is really hard for a lot of people. Maybe this is like a strength that I should really play into. And then you, you start, you know, thinking about the different scenarios in your life where you can kind of deploy it, like you mentioned, um, you know, talking to your daughters and stuff like that. I've kind of had a similar experience, like talking to my wife, like I have learned that, you know, if, if my wife comes to me with a problem, she does not want me to give her the solution to the problem right <laughs> off the bat. And I don't say that yeah. to pick on her, but I just say that, like, I think empathy or deploying real empathy there is me going to sit with her. And like you said, um, the Teddy Roosevelt quote, yeah, I have to, she has to know that I really care about her yeah. first 
And once I'm once we're there, I'm sitting on the same side with her, then we can walk towards finding whatever the solution to the problem is. Um, so it's just such a tactical tool empathy is, I think. Um, and to your point, I think it is a it's largely missing in the world today. So any anytime I get the chance to talk about it on on this podcast, I, uh, I try I try to bring it up. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned your, your daughters. I'd love to talk to talk about them a little bit. I'd love to hear you talk about them. Maybe, uh, what it's been like raising daughters. I have two boys myself. Um, so I have no idea what it's like. I feel like for boys or for a dad raising boys, a lot of it's kind of like natural and instinctual. I'd have to imagine for a dad raising girls, you have to do a little bit more, um, maybe inner work, the self-awareness, like you're yeah. talking about understanding, females a little bit better. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, being a dad to two daughters has really changed my uh, perception of parenting in general, just because the first thing I, the first book I read was called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. And that really opened up my eyes to the importance of a father's role, specifically in a daughter's life. You know, the father-son dynamic is a little bit different. Uh, girls are emotional creatures. Actually, their brains develop faster than boys do. So they're more emotionally mature at a younger age. And, um, and so ever since that first book, I was like, okay, this is why I got to do the work on myself because I want to show up as the best version of myself for my daughters. Um, and it's, it's been challenging for sure. There's definitely been some, especially recently with the, the preteen phase and hormones changing. But another good book I read called the female brain has really helped me develop more empathy for what they're going through because I, I try and, you know, keep them accountable to like, Hey, you're acting this way and that's not okay. And it's okay to talk about that in moments where they're not acting, you know, the way I think they should, but it's helped me develop a lot of empathy for understanding why they're acting the way they are. They're not just acting out hormones. Chemicals are more powerful than we think. And um, this book, The Female Brain, really opened up my eyes to just how powerful these hormonal surges are at these phases of life where like you, you think you're in control of your emotions and your personality, but really the power of hormones and chemicals in the brain literally make you a different person. And there's no arguing that in my opinion. So it's just helped me develop more empathy for them. Um, it's helped me also reach out to their mom to uh, figure out you know, better ways to communicate because as of recent, there's been more of a distance between me and my daughters. Now that they're at this stage of life where like, I'm not cool anymore. They don't want to like be seen with me, even though I think I'm cool. I, you know, to them, I'm not cool. Even though, even though their friends think I'm cool because it's fit to fat to fit and all that stuff. Um, they still don't think I'm cool. So I'm having to like learn this new phase of life with them where I'm like, okay, how do I want to show up? Because they don't, want to spend time with me like they used to when they were little and we would do all the things together now it's like okay i need to be okay with letting them have their space and do their thing and then i have to reinvent myself because now my identity isn't this dad who spends a lot of time with his daughters now it's like okay i gotta let them go and do their thing and give them more space and privacy because they want that at this stage of life and i'm not forcing them to spend time with me or forcing them to do things with me which causes them to resent me more I'm having to find this new phase of life where I need to show up for myself in a different way and always be there for them, but without smothering them and, and being all over them, they need their independence as well. So it's, it's interesting. I think my advice, you know, for any of the, the parents out there, dads mostly probably listen to this is like, there's going to be different phases of life where you have to show up differently. What you did when they were little doesn't work the same when they're 
preteen or teenage years now um, and, and, you know, continuing to do the work on yourself and showing up differently in different phases is, has been a huge humbling, very humbling lesson for me. And I'm just now on the other side of it, but I went through some dark phases, dark days where I'm like, who am I now that my daughters don't need me as much? Like I, I, I kind of had this identity crisis um, and that really opened up my eyes to, um, okay, I got to show up for myself in a different way now. And like, how do I want to do that? It looks different than what I'm used to, right? Because I think we try and hold on to this identity of like, oh, they're always going to be daddy's little girls or they're always going to be this phase of life, but they grow up and they change. And it's like, all right, I can't stay stuck there because it's, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not always going to stay the same. And I need to, I can't stay the same either. So it's part of uh, evolving in a sense. So does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a really real thing, you know, to be willing and able to let your kids grow up, to let them go. Let, my parents used to make the joke, we got to let you fly. And uh, I know yeah. that my kids are five and three, so I'm not yeah. there yet. But it's, <laughs> yeah. I'll be honest, it scares the shit out of me. Like I think about it all the time. I, like what you just articulated is something that, I kind of see down the road and I use that vantage point almost to look back and I'm like, I got to be present now. Cause these are the, I just did a solo episode. These are the good old days, like wherever we are. Yeah. But for me right now, the good old days is my kids do want to cuddle up with me and they think I'm a superhero. Yeah. So like, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm leaning, leaning hard, um, into that. Uh, but yeah, man, it's that, that's scary. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, yeah. so you mentioned that you kind of went through some dark times with that and, and this is just, wide open question is, is that what led you to go through your recent, I think like a break away from social media is, is that what kind of got you moving yeah. in that direction there? Uh, do yeah. you mind talking to us a little bit about stepping away from social media and just having a reset for yourself personally? Sure. Yes, that is the reason. Um, there's nothing harder than challenges with your kids in life. And this was the first time that I experienced some heavy stuff because, you know, when your kids are five and three or four and six, or like, you know, just younger, the, the, the challenges they go through are, are minor. Uh, but now that they're older and the kids become meaner and the challenges they go through are more serious now, it's heavy, heavy stuff. And I thought I was prepared. I, I thought I was like, you know, ready for this phase of life, but man, there were some curveballs that were thrown at me where I'm like, okay, I'm not ready for this. This is way harder than I thought it was going to be. I need some serious help. So I did have to take a break to take care of my own mental health during this time where I did took, I took like a month off of social media, had my team run, you know, run it for me. Um, it was a combination of that and some other personal things like with the relationship. I'm a single dad, um, went through a tough breakup last year um, and, um, and, and was still struggling with some things lingering from that. Plus on top of like, you know, one of my daughters was struggling more. And I had, like, I didn't know how to be there for her. It was really, really hard, man. But those are my darkest moments that I've ever been through when it has to do with things with your kids. Um, because being an empath, like I am, I feel all the feelings and I feel their pain and I not being able to talk to them about it really, really hard um, or help them through it because I kind of absorb that pain as well. And so, yeah, man, it was, I saw it. <clears throat> you know, those are my darkest days. I didn't know how I was going to get out of it, but I had to step back from what I thought was important, which is my social media and doing what I do for work 
um, to really like take care of myself. This is the first time I've really admitted to myself that I was depressed. This is the first time that I've really admitted that I needed help. And um, that was hard for me, a hard pill to swallow, very, very humbling experience to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like I'm pretty proud of myself for the way I, I did it. Uh, I think as men, we are really good at wearing a mask, suppressing those feelings, acting like we got our shit figured out when <laughs> really we don't a lot of times. <laughs> and I think it's, it's, it's hard to ask for help. It really is uh, as a man. But for me, I was willing to do it because I needed to become this next version of myself so that I could better show up for my daughter. So that was the motivating factor for me. It's like, I, if I stay stuck here, uh, you know, I'm not going to serve anyone. It's not going to help anyone. So yeah. I had to figure out a way out of that. And luckily, I, I've, I'm seeing a light at the end of the tunnel now and things have improved. Um, Good. Luckily. So. so can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like? I mean, asking for help, but to your point, I think that's one of the hardest things for us has been to do a lot of the time. I'd love to hear your perspective on, I guess, what that actually looked like for you and then how you kind of pulled yourself, have been pulling yourself into the right direction towards that light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, that's a good question. So what that looked like for me was, you know, my whole life I've struggled with opening up. You know, I remember when I was going through my divorce stuff, I didn't tell my family that I was divorced for a while. I didn't tell my audience for a long time that I was divorced. And I've always struggled with asking for help in times of like great need. And so for me, um, I felt like the only person I could turn to was my ex-wife and her husband. Cause I feel like they understood my struggle more than anyone else because, you know, they're, they are raising, you know, my daughters as well. And so they can see that. So honestly, as, as, as humbling as it was like, and embarrassing as it was like, I totally, asked them if I could talk to them and I freaking had a meltdown in front of them. I just was totally broken at the time and I was ugly crying in front of them. And it was hard to do that. Really, really hard to do that. Um, but I'm glad I did because it helped us develop a better relationship. Uh, they developed some empathy for me and they showed up with empathy, which made me feel so good. And it's helped us to develop a better relationship as co-parents to, you know, show up, uh, the best we can for uh, our daughters. And so that was what the first step looked like was just being, just talking to someone about it. And, um, you know, I have a therapist and she's awesome. She's amazing. We mostly talk about personal stuff, but, um, you know, continuing to see her, I can still see my life coach that I mentioned um, that definitely helped out as well. And then um, things like meditation, positive affirmations and gratitude list. Uh, journaling every single day have been helpful as well. And then the other thing that I'll throw in there, because I was already doing those things before, but I mm-hmm. feel like I was going through the motions because uh, I've been doing it for years. Now showing up and doing it intentionally with a different purpose has really been powerful for me. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I would say is getting out of my comfort zone and trying things that scare me um, have really helped me to show up for myself. So I live in Hawaii right now. One of the things I did was start surfing. I suck at it. I'm, I'm not <laughs> Kelly Slater, but I wanted to like do something for myself and, and do something different instead of like doing the same thing over and over again. So I started sketching. I started painting. I started doing surfing lessons, um, dance lessons, things that I know I suck at that I'm not very good at, but I wanted to try things that scare me. 
I think that's a, that's an opportunity for growth as well, because we get stuck into the same routines that are comfortable for us. And we, there's not a lot of growth that happens there. So I think stepping out of our comfort zone, doing things that scare you, whatever that looks like, doesn't have to be surfing or whatever, but that's kind of like this new, how I'm showing up for myself, this new phase of life. Like, okay, who do I want to become in this next phase of life? And it really comes down to learning how to become the hero of your own story and how you want to show up for yourself. And if you feel like you're in this place where you're stuck as a parent, as you know, mom or dad, whatever, learning how to show up for yourself and become the hero of your story truly is the medicine, the best medicine, because sometimes we look for other people to fix it for us. Like, well, man, why don't my kids just change or my spouse change or, you know, my family, why don't they just be different? And then I won't have to suffer. But until you learn how to show up for yourself and become the hero of your own story, you're looking for these other people to do the work for you when you got to do the work for yourself and show up for yourself. That's what I learned from that experience. Hey, and excuse me. Amen. The, uh, the, that's that idea of extreme ownership of not, yeah. not waiting on somebody else to fix the problem, not waiting on someone or not blaming someone else, whatever it is, being able to look at yourself and say, Hey, what can, what can I do? What can I do to take yeah. one step? What can I do to take two steps? And then just kind of going yeah. from there, but just taking it on yourself. I love, love, love that point. Um, so as we move towards the back end of the conversation here, I've got two last questions that I ask sure. um, every, almost everybody. So this first one, I'm just going to lob it up to you. Drew, what are you the most proud of in your life so far? That's a good question. I would say, honestly, I mean, with fit to fit and all that stuff, that's cool. But uh, honestly, I would say doing the inner work and chain really breaking the cycle of generational trauma. I feel like I've done my best uh, job at that, that I'm really proud of how I've showed up for myself over the years uh, as a dad um, and helping people transform, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and just paying it forward um, through all my personal experiences and personal failures and rock bottom moments. And I, I guess that's kind of uh, what I'm most proud of. Awesome. Last question here, and it has to do with legacy. So legacy is something that we hear about all, all the time on social media. You see it a lot. A lot of times it's presented as generational wealth or, you know, what building your last name is going to be on all this kind of <laughs> stuff. Right. When I think about legacy, I think about the people that mean the most to me. Um, for me, that's, that's my wife and kids. But when I think about legacy, yeah. I'm kind of thinking about what I'm leaving behind. So I think about my kids. And when I think about it, I think about legacy being the moments, the memories, the lessons, the, the little things that they might remember about me, things that they might've learned from me that they can then carry with them to live the rest of their life with. So if I present that question to you through that context, um, the moments, the memories, the lessons, whatever it is, what do you want your legacy to be with your two little girls? A good question. Um, I would say two things. One is I lived my life uh, the best I could to bring more empathy into this world. And my hope is that that's kind of what my kids or my family or those close to me will know me as is this driving force for more empathy. And I feel like for me, I could die a happy man if that's what I, I was known for uh, outside of like fit to fit to fit. Of course, people are going to know that, but like it really comes down to bringing more empathy into this world. And that's kind of what I hope my legacy will be. That's so good, man. Thank you so much, Drew, for making some time for us today. This Thanks, has been Brandon. a tremendous conversation. Uh, last question for you. Where do you want to send people? Where can people learn more about you? Yeah, super simple. Um, it's all the same fit. Number two, fat, number two, fit. 
So fit2fatfit.com, that's the name of my first book. It's the name of all my social media handles, my website, of course, my podcast, just Google fit to fat to fit and you'll find all, all my stuff out there. Um, but really appreciate you having me on, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, good stuff, Drew. Thank you so much. We'll link all that up in the show notes. Um, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Drew, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, brother. Have a good one. All right, everybody. That's it. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, do me a huge favor and subscribe to the show or leave us a rating and review. We can't thank you enough for your support. Until next time, remember to love and lead from the front. See ya.